If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn in it to Philippians chapter 1, where we're going to be looking at verses 27 to 30 this week. Uh, Here we're going to read the words that, honestly, I wish I had paid more attention to uh, when I was younger, particularly in my late teens through my 20s. Uh, Actually, it's because of a lot of my ignorance to what happens in these few short verses that I have some of my life's biggest regrets. It's actually because I ignored these verses that I failed to live up to what Jesus expects of his followers. It's actually a huge regret of mine that at different times through my life, I was so black and white, so hardline on certain things theologically uh, that I allowed secondary and tertiary differences to get between me and other followers of Jesus and what we could have done together. I actually regret immensely that because of, of certain times when I've been frightened by what the potential consequences are of sharing my face, of my faith that I, and losing face, that I, I think I was missing opportunities to be winsome for the name of Jesus. And so my hope is that as we read these words, you will sort of heed my warning from, I I hope you can tell my regret of these things, in order for us to better put into practice the words that Paul encourages us in, so that you wouldn't uh, t- that you'd learn from my experience, from Paul's experience, to better reflect Jesus in all the places that we go, to take him seriously, to live up to him. Now, for those who haven't been with us, let me just re- uh, tell you where we're at. We're currently studying a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in 62 AD to a church in ancient Macedonia, uh, specifically to a church in a town called Philippi, which was sort of a Roman colony city on an important pathway. And uh, he's writing to them to remind them of who they are and what God's doing, to encourage them, to uplift them, to thank them for how they've supported him. Up to this point, he has uh, reminded them of their mutual connection. He says, we're all connected because of who Jesus is and what his position is in our lives. He's encouraged them that even though he's imprisoned, even though he faces the potential penalty of death for how he's lived, He's thankful. He's thankful because his sacrifice, the things he's gone through, have served to encourage others to be bold in their faith. And from there, he sort of launches into what's next. And we're going to read the first part of that uh, here in verses 27 to 30, where he turns from himself and the past into what's next. So he says this, Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This then is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved, and that is by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, 
but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider these words, uh, would you just reveal to us what we need to hear? Lord, I confess that there's many times in my life that I look back with regret of not living up to this. And Lord, uh, while I've asked you for forgiveness, uh, Lord, I just pray uh, for the best, for what's next. Lord, would you help me and all of us here together to live out these words? And Lord God, would we be people who are bold? Would we be people who are unified? Uh, and would we be people who are advancing your gospel so that people would have faith in you, so that we would be able to celebrate more stories like the ones we just heard a couple minutes ago? And Lord God, would you help us in whatever is next? So Lord, open our hearts, open our minds. And Lord God, would you speak to us clearly today? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So right off the top, at the beginning of this passage, Paul just jumps right in. He just says, whatever happens. So I'm in jail. I'm facing potential of death. Other people are going out sharing the news, potentially facing all sorts of conflict. But whatever happens to them and ultimately to you, I encourage you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel or the good news of Christ, so that is Jesus. Now what's really interesting here is that term conduct yourself is an English translation of a Greek word which means a whole lot more than what we read in most of our modern translations. In this term conduct yourselves, the Greek word actually has a connection to being a citizen. So what Paul actually says in the original language is conduct yourself as a citizen in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Scholar Gordon, Mc, uh, Gordon Fee explains this, verb, this verb, citizenship, by saying this. He says, Paul now uses a verb metaphorically, not meaning live as citizens of Rome, although that is not irrelevant, but rather live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. Remember, the church in Philippi is located as this, in uh, an important place. It's this elite little colony that's an outpost of the Roman world. And to live there and thrive there, there was a lot to celebrate and sort of have pride in. But what Paul encourages them to do is not live as the people of Philippi, but to live actually in a radically countercultural way. He says, I don't want you to live as a person of Philippi. I want you to live as a citizen of heaven who's been placed in that city. Paul's reminding them, and we will see this time and time again through this letter. The reason that you're special isn't because you're a Macedonian. The reason that you're special isn't because you're Roman citizens. The reason that you're special isn't because of what you do or who your family is or what your social status is. The reason that you are special is because you are bound together in heaven because of the work of Jesus on the cross and your faith in him. It was because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that Paul called them to live life in a unique way. And by extension, he's calling us to that as well. While this is written to them, we hear it for us. 
No matter what we face, no matter what place we take in society, here in Abbotsford, in our neighboring towns, no matter what place we take in our industry, where we work, or the school that we go to, or whatever it is, no matter where we rank in those places, we don't conduct ourselves according to that. We conduct our lives, our business, we go around living out the purpose as a citizen of heaven, as someone who has been saved by Jesus. And because of that, he gives a command, a way of living. In the second part of verse 27 and through the the beginning of 28, we read this. Then whenever I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that, and here's the command, you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. To live as someone who's been saved by Jesus is to stand together with others who have been saved by Jesus, then to strive together with a purpose that others may have faith in the good news of Jesus. Here early on in this letter, Paul is giving this picture of a church that is unified. A church that is gathered together around a why and living it out because of what Jesus did for them. So he starts, I want you to stand together. Well, what good is there? What benefit is what Paul is saying here? Well, because when we stand together, we can weather more. Paul's not ignorant to the fact that the Roman Empire is against anyone who would call themselves a citizen of heaven. He's been the byproduct of everything that Rome has to throw against. He's been tortured and beaten and mocked and spit upon, imprisoned. He's gone through shipwrecks. He knows the difficulties. And he goes, you can't do this on your own. And we remember back to the beginning of Philippians. He goes, I thank God because of you, because of your support, because we're in this together. And once again, he reminds them, it's not just you supporting me, but it's all of us standing together as one. And when we're linked as one, we're a whole lot stronger. We're not going to topple over. In the place of unity, we're able to weather the storm, but we're also able to push forward together, to strive together. And the language that he uses here in the Greek gives us this picture of a Roman army. Now, the Roman army was the greatest military might at the time and anything that had come before it. And one of the reasons they were so good was because of their tactics. And one of their greatest tactics is depicted on the screen here. It's that they would link together and work as one as they advanced and defended. This here is uh, the beginning of what will become a, a uniform push and movement called the turtle. 
Now, that's the English word for it, but there's this uh, Roman word for it. But what happens is the, the legion of army would work together, and they had shields that were built in such a way that they could interlock them and overlap them so that the entire front line would be able to withstand anything that came at it. You couldn't get a sword through it, a spear through it. You couldn't even shoot an arrow through it. Now, to be extra secure, what they would do is they would have the next line of guys who would raise their shields and overlap them over the top. So now nothing can come over the top. And if they really needed it, what they could actually do is create an entire box. And the way they would interlock their shields was such that there would be a shield wall on all four sides and a roof over top of them. And together they would take one step at a time in either attack or defense. They would also have individuals who were in the midst who would stick out their spears through the interlocking shield, ensuring that they were protected and they would be able to attack their enemy. The neighboring militaries could not get through this because they were so cohesive. They worked as such a singular unit that it didn't matter what came against them. They would be able to advance. It didn't matter what the enemy had. They would be able to attack and get through their enemy's defense. And so surely as Paul writes this, he's saying, this is what I want you to picture as you work together as people who follow Jesus. I want you to work so well together with one another that you can attack and defend with purpose and unity so that you all are safe and so that the cause is advanced. Sadly, though, this isn't what a lot of our churches look like. Instead, this is what our churches look like instead. Instead of working all together, what ends up happening is we end up pointing our weapons at one another. Again, this is one of those things that I say that I regret. It's something that I continue to have to work on because, well, I'm a passionate guy, particularly when it comes to things like theology and what I think is correct. But what I have learned painfully through the years is the hurt and the lack of advance that comes when I'm more worried about what's happening beside me. Now, this isn't to say what I'm not saying is that there aren't important theological distinctions and important things that we should wrestle through as a church. What I am saying is a lot of times what we do is we take things that are secondary and tertiary and we use them as weapons against the people we are supposed to be linked arms with. And that is a huge regret. That is something that I see that just destroys not just our witness to the world, but our ability to even do anything with one another. We destroy one another in that. This is something that we need to work on together as a church community to recognize that we have to forgive in disagreement, that we have to focus on what's important when things go against. And together, unified, what we do is we focus on Jesus and his mission 
how we advance that. And that's where Paul goes. Paul goes on from here to say that he wants us to strive towards one thing. And that thing isn't all being right or all looking the same or all understanding the same thing or, or, or even what we should be going against. Instead, he says what we should go forward to. In verse 27, the second part of 27 and 28, again, hear this. He says, then whenever I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit. So together we're unified, we're focused on what's important, and we're striving towards what? So we're striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. The thing that unifies us and that we should be focused on isn't something that we're against, not with one another or from the world outside of us. We don't work against something, we work for something. We work for people to have faith in the good news of Jesus. There's a very subtle difference that actually has massive implication in the way we consider what we're supposed to do together as a church. The idea of being for instead of being against actively changes how we share our faith. It actively changes the difference that we can make in the world. You know, as I survey what's happening in our world, I think a lot of people's public expression of their faith is actually a reaction against something that they don't like. And that could be a whole lot of different things. But what I very rarely see, but when I do see it, it has a great effect, is people who live out their faith for the purpose of other people having faith. For showing people that Jesus really is good news. For showing that there's beauty within the church. Rather than saying, hey, this is what I'm against. As we all know, the Christian church in America has been in decline for a decade or so. What we often don't realize is that this has been true in our Canadian context for far longer than what takes place in America. If you're looking for cues at what the church should do, don't look to the states. They're actually behind us. We're way ahead of them in terms of cultural changes and what's happening in the church. We are a far more secularized nation. The church is dealing with incredibly different things that we are actually trying to react against. And I believe, actually, that much of our decline is because we focused on what we're against instead of focused on what we're for. I believe much of how we've been living is a moralistic gospel rather than a gospel that paints the beauty of the person of Jesus. I think really a big reason the church is in decline today is because what we like to do is we like to tell people that they should behave in order to believe so that they can belong. This is what I grew up with. This is what I remember trying to live out as I tried to share faith. And regrettably so, 
I saw so many people who just turned and walked away. Because this is what I said. I said, you know what? If you were a Christian, you would have to get your stuff together. You know, it's even step foot in a church. You've got to make your life look a lot better than it is. And then, if you do that, maybe you can come to Jesus, and then maybe you can belong as one of us. A lot of what we say is the church community is, hey, I don't like what's going on out there. I don't like the convictions that you live out. I don't like the agenda you're trying to push. And you know what? You need to change that so that you can receive Jesus. Guess what? That does not work. I actually have a, learned to have a whole lot more patience when I realize that our behavior changes after we come to faith in Jesus, not before. I don't get angry with people who have alternative uh, agendas that go against what we believe as a church because there's no reason for them to believe the things I believe because why? I would be just like them if I hadn't received the good news of Jesus in my life. And so what am I doing going against them instead of going towards and for them sharing the good news of Jesus? I think we have this whole thing wrong where we say first you have to behave, then you can believe in order to belong. I think we actually have to flip those arrows I think the thing that would be much more compelling in the way we live as a church is to say, look at what it means to belong as one of us. This goes back to the standing unified. You go out anywhere in the world and everyone's against everybody else. One of uh, my favorite comedians is uh, this really, actually, terribly liberal uh, comedian who stands for all sorts of things I don't like, and one of the jokes he often makes is... One of the things that's most pressing of being a liberal is I have to prove I'm more liberal than someone else. That's how we live in society, whether we're, we're liberal or we're conservative. I gotta be more conservative than them. I gotta be more liberal than them. I gotta be more for this. I gotta be more against this. And we just scatter and take shots at one another and we end up dividing everything and everyone and scatter everyone away. But instead, if the church was unified, even though we have some disagreement, even though we have some differences that maybe are difficult to reconcile, if we can focus on the what we're for, all of a sudden we will look incredibly compelling. If we can talk about what it looks like to be unified in diversity and difference and that we love one another and that we care for each other and that we support one another, even when we disagree sometimes passionately on certain issues, then man, maybe someone might want to belong to the church. And then maybe, just maybe, if they saw the beauty in what unifies us in the person of Jesus and how amazing he is, maybe then they would believe. Behavior modification is not what the gospel is about. 
We hope for behavior modification because we hope that every single one of us who follows Jesus is working on being more like him. But we're never going to get there until we give people a reason to want to belong and believe. And the only way we're getting there is if we can stand unified and go out into our community with love, sharing the message of faith and the good news of the gospel. One of my biggest prayers ever since I moved to Abbotsford at the beginning of 2017 was, God, I want to see more of your kingdom come in Abbotsford as it is in heaven. I want to see more of our friends and our neighbors and our classmates and our co-workers coming to faith in Jesus. But in order to do that, we need to change our marketing strategy because it's not working. One societal commentator who is the leading expert at studying the intersection of Christianity and culture in North America said this. He said the church in North America is in irreversible decline. If we continue to do what we are doing, we might as well call it quits because we're not doing anything. Now, he goes on to explain, it's not hopeless, though. There's actually a lot to be hoping for. Because when we've seen places that have gone under the pressure of everything standing against them, in places where the, the, the gospel has not been preached in a compelling and active way, when we've seen them change course and embrace what's actually taught in Scripture, we see the church begins to flourish. So many of us, we go, man, the church is done for. Well, let me tell you, wake up. Look anywhere outside of the West, and you will see a thriving church. Latin America, the church is exploding. The church is exploding all over Africa. Asia, even in very difficult communist countries, we see that there is flourishing churches rising up again. Why? Because they've learned that it's not about our petty differences, but it's about the gospel. And when we can paint a beautiful picture of who Jesus is, the church will flourish in any environment because people will want to believe They'll want to belong, and then we'll see heaven sent. And that's what we do. That's what we need to pursue. And there's so much hope in this. Paul actually gives a promise. He said a message is going to be sent. He goes on to say this is going to be a sign to them. You're standing unified. You're striving for the gospel is going to send a message that, that those who stand against it will be destroyed but those of you that will be saved have been saved by God. D.A. Carson says this. He says, your change in character, your united stand in the defense of the gospel, 
your ability to withstand the pressures of the world with meekness and without fear of the opposing that you must endure constitutes a song. That song is a sign that speaks volumes both to the outside world as well as within the Christian community. It's a sign of judgment of the world that if they do not change, they will be condemned. But it's also a sign of insurance that these believers really are the people of God and will be saved on the last day. If we really want to be seen as a group that is saved, that really are citizens of heaven, that really are living out the mandate of Jesus, we need to stand unified in Jesus under his one spirit, the Holy Spirit, binding us together, and we need to work for our community to believe in the good news of Jesus. And then everyone who looks at us will see a community, a place where they can belong, where they can put their faith and trust in Jesus. And they will believe and their lives will be changed and we will have much to celebrate. We don't have to fear what's going on in the world outside of us if we can present a compelling alternative. We don't have to fear the potential condemnation and ignorance of people and abuse of people and mockery and who knows, maybe one day far worse instances of suffering because of what we believe. Because why what Paul said in verse 21 that we looked at last week? Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Even if we experience the worst of anything that could be thrown at us by the world, which could lead us to death, we would still win because we'd be with Jesus and we'd experience and receive all the things that he's promised us in an instant. So why do we fear? Why are we worried about the church getting squished? Why are we worried about what's going to go on and happen when we have the antidote, when we have something that's more compelling, when we have something that's more life-changing, if only we could bring it to them. Now, I don't want to paint the perfect picture without acknowledging the very reality that Paul does, and that is that we will likely suffer to some degree because of this. Now, we're very fortunate we live in this part of the world, and our suffering is pretty pathetic, actually, compared to what's happening in other parts of the world. But, but we can acknowledge for now that there is some, you know, we, we might get mocked, we might get passed up on for job opportunities, we might uh, be rejected in different ways, the way certain things are going with the government, yeah, there's, there's potential for other things that are going to come against us. But our reaction isn't to be what it normally is, which is to go into panic. And to freak out and, and, and run away and hide or go and yell against people. Why? Because suffering is a good thing. In verse 29 to 30, he says, Paul says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him. So God's not only allowed us to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. 
Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here I still have. Now, what's important here, we don't misunderstand Paul. Paul isn't saying that this suffering in and of itself is good. He's not saying God is the author of this suffering. But what he is saying is that God has given us a good gift through suffering. One of those gifts that we get to identify with Jesus. Jesus suffered. The more we suffer, the more we get to understand him the more we get to understand what he walked through and what he experienced on his way to death and resurrection so that we could have faith in him. It gives us so much more of an appreciation for who he is and what he's done. It also gives us assurance that we are actually saved people. Our suffering for our faith is actually an assurance of salvation. It helps us not to just identify with Jesus, but to know that we have been marked out as one of his. That's actually a gift. It's a gift to know that others see us as citizens of heaven. We also have the gift in suffering is that while suffering in itself isn't a great end, that isn't really the end. It has the ability to produce new things in us. Paul, who's imprisoned here, who goes through all this, writes elsewhere in the book of Romans. He says, we can rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope will never disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The reason we can endure is because we know what's on the other side. We know that to die is to gain, to suffer is to experience more of Jesus, to know him better. So actually we're receiving more and more as we go through those difficult things. No matter what you face, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what we together might have to experience, no matter what we might have fears against, we know that there is something much greater. That God is good and that he works all things together for the good of those who love him. And that he has a compelling and beautiful alternative. So while I might be scared for my kids or my grandkids, I know that there's something even better for them. I know that there's someone even stronger who contends for their soul. Far better than I could ever do or any one of my friends. Because I know that together if we stand as a church in the Holy Spirit, and we strive for the faith of the gospel, that God will win. If you are a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you today to first find a way to stand as one. If you are frustrated with other believers, if you are harboring a grudge or a resentment against someone else, you need to learn to forgive. 
And it doesn't matter if that's in this church or with someone outside of this church in another church or another place, another country. That, and it doesn't matter. And you harbor a resentment against them. But if they are unified with you, uh, they are a person of God you need to forgive. Because Jesus forgave you first. And it's our job to follow him. If you aren't actively engaged in sharing the good news of Jesus, you need to join in. Don't come be a seat warmer on a Sunday. Get up from that seat with others who believe and share the good news of Jesus. And then no matter what we face, whether it's even the thing that scares you most for yourself or your kids or someone else, learn to trust in who God is. Go back to the cross. Go back to reminding yourself of your own story, of what Jesus has done for you. Remember the stories this week of, of the students who were baptized and what God has done in them. And then maybe, just maybe, we'll give the people of Abbotsford a reason to want to belong and want to believe so we can see the fulfillment of what God promises to build more of his kingdom here in Abbotsford as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and what you have accomplished. God, I thank you so much that you were willing to die for us, Jesus, that you were willing to endure so much so that we could have faith in you. And God, I pray that if there's anyone who doesn't yet believe in you, Lord, that they would see the beauty in who you were, that you are someone who would sacrifice your own life in place of someone else, that you would give good gifts and good purpose and good life, that you would turn even the worst of circumstances into good things for us ultimately. Lord, would they, would they be captivated by that? Lord, as a church family, would we be so captivated by that that we would let go of everything else. Lord, that we would focus on the, prime, the things of primary importance, not secondary importance. That we would focus on, on working together instead of holding grudges against someone else. Would we, not just as, as a church of Emmanuel, but would we, together with the other churches of our city, work together to bring your good news. And God, would you just bless that? Would you just work so wonderfully in our hearts that we could forgive the most painful of, from the most painful of places so that we can stand as one? Would you help us to have wisdom in how we can live our lives on the daily so that we could share who you are as an alternative to what the world has to offer? And Lord God, would we not lose hope Will we not be discouraged by what some call the decline of the church? Will we not be discouraged by all the things that, that those who, who don't know you are bringing against the church or into the world? And, and Lord, will we not fear those things, but instead would you help us to know how to, with a compelling 
and persuasive way of being and living and sharing, give the alternative, which is you. God, will you help us to share your word, which we know you say that when we put it out into the world, it will never return back empty. Would you allow us to live in such a way that the world would know we are yours? God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for who you are making us to be. And we thank you for how you will use us in the days yet to come. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.